1: I'm sure by now a lot of you have heard this story. It's a a sad story if it's being accurately reported. And for the purposes of this discussion, I will assume it's being accurately reported. Students at a high school in Queens, New York, uh, reportedly stormed the hallways after learning a teacher attended a pro-Israel protest on Monday. According to the New York Police Department, school safety agents at Hillcrest High School in Queens requested the response of the school sergeant in regard to a disorderly group of students inside of the location. When the sergeant responded, the students reportedly dispersed. I think, for starters, that explains why we need more school safety agents. But the New York Post reported Saturday that this disturbance began over what students referred to as a protest that was already planned due to a teacher's facebook profile photo that showed her at a pro-israel rally last month holding a poster that said i stand with israel so the only reason that any students knew that this teacher was pro-israel and you know then carried on in the manner that they did was because the teacher posted that on social media. Now, obviously, there's no excuse for terrorizing a teacher under any circumstances. But it got me thinking because I was listening to a caller to my friend Dominic Carter's radio show last night who was a teacher and said, you know, this is exactly why, you know, I have very strong views. This is exactly why I don't broadcast my views, not in the classroom not on social media, I don't broadcast it. And it got me thinking I have a lot of friends that are teachers. I dated a teacher for uh, three years, and they were always very careful about what they po- put on social media. They would not broadcast their political views, some of them would not broadcast their political views inside the classroom, and they would not broadcast it on social media for a variety of reasons. But part of it was they don't want, if they're weighing in on something controversial, for instance, it's not uh, crazy to think that if you're a Trump supporter as a teacher in an area where there are not a lot of Trump supporters, that some parents and some teachers, uh, excuse me, some students may get a little crazy about that. doesn't mean you're not a good teacher, but it means that maybe you don't want the distraction of broadcasting a political view well, I don't even know if Stand with Israel is a political view. It's certainly a geopolitical view. It's very much a foreign policy view. And my question is: do you think teachers should refrain from advertising what their views are on controversial issues or on maybe just we'll change it from controversial issues? to political issues in general. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. On the one hand, I understand why teachers do this, meaning I understand why they refrain from stating what their positions are. But on the other hand, my answer is no. I think teachers should be uh, free to broadcast whatever they want outside of the classroom especially, Uh, but even inside of the classroom. I I, I had teachers tell me what their politics were, and you know what? I was glad they would tell me because it allowed me to kind of guard myself against them and uh, see if what they were teaching me in in the classroom was colored by their political views at all. But I can understand why in the classroom maybe it's a no-no, But I don't think uh, just because you choose a profession like teaching, I don't think that you should abdicate your rights to the full spectrum of free speech. And part of that is being able to post on Facebook. I'd love to hear from some teachers in this regard or retired teachers. 800-848-9222. Should teachers refrain from broadcasting their political views. Why or why not? 800-848-9222. My view is, and we'll apply this all the way up to the college level, because the, more, uh, the higher up you go with the older students you have, the more likely it is that one of these students is going to disagree with you and create a big beef based on one of your views. My view is no. Teachers should be free to talk about whatever they want especially outside of the classroom. I'm curious what you think. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Coming up in about uh, 20 minutes, we're going to talk with Sheldon Evans. He's a a law professor, and he had a fascinating column in The Hill about uh, the prosecutions of Donald Trump. Basically, he said, yeah, they're political, but they're always political. Every prosecution of everybody's political, in essence. I'm oversimplifying it, but we're going to get to it, get into it. It's a fascinating op-ed, and uh, I'm glad that he was uh, able to join us at this late or early hour. So I'm looking forward to that. And I uh, do want to encourage you to join the Facebook group. If you're on Facebook and would like to connect with other listeners, you could search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's on Facebook, M-O-R-A-N-O. <laughs> Radio fans and haters. Joseph's in Pennsylvania. Hello, Joseph. How are you? I'm doing just great, Joseph. Give me your view on what we're talking about.
2: Well, here's my view. I I'm, I'm now retired, but I was a celebrated teacher in the state of New Jersey. I was actually one of the county teachers of the year for the state of New oh, Jersey. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, you know, I've seen a lot, and I know a lot of what's going on in the public schools right now which I disapprove of. So directly to your question, I disapprove of teachers giving their political analysis or opinions to kids because you have to understand these kids can easily be manipulated. It's almost exploitation. If they love the teacher, and especially if the teacher is well-celebrated, good teacher, kids like the teacher, they're learning from the teacher, that teacher has a lot of influence, maybe more than parental influence, over that child. And the bottom line is that they give their political views, which may not be in line even with their own parents' views. Uh, that's a that's a dangerous territory. We're getting paid to teach our subject area. That is it. We're not getting paid to to politically exploit or or to to to, to lend our own opinions of worldviews, whether sure maybe political I... gender family or anything that is not what we were originally supposed to do and that's the problem with public schools today well first we're of all I do, think, I do think i do think this the wrong business i
1: do think this goes on at, at some private schools as well but let me ask you, i agree let me ask you joseph Let's say in the case of this teacher, Uh, this teacher clearly feels uh, very strongly about supporting Israel, and uh, I don't think students are supposed to friend their teachers on Facebook anyway. Let's say this teacher didn't mention anything about it in the classroom. Do you think the teacher should have refrained from posting on Facebook the teacher's support of Israel?
2: Well, see, that's... (laughs) You just hit a, a, a subject area that's really a problem for all teachers. When you start soliciting your opinion over any type of media, whether it be Facebook, TikTok, or anything else, the bottom line is it, it's it's susceptible for your kids to read. Right. So so to, so yeah, I guess maybe our freedoms are being taken away because we don't <laughs> if we abide by some type of personal. Um, Conviction, like I do, you would refrain from giving your opinions that way. Just put them in a circle of adults or where you think they may count. But let's face it, um, I, it's, it's just a double-edged sword. Yeah. You know, if you don't use it, you're, den- you're denying yourself of, of, of the own freedom of using right. it. And yet, if you choose to not use it or, or to use it, then you're also jeopardizing, you know, your own, um, I guess, uh, you... Uh, I'm putting this in a raw context. No, no, I... I You're I, jeopardizing the fact that you can be controlling other young people. Well, that's the problem with the Internet anyway. Half of any the information is wrong. Our kids are, are getting a, a totally well, wrong historical information on the Internet to begin
1: with. Thanks, Joseph. Great call. I, I don't want to get into the uh, accuracy of what you find on the internet, because that could be a show in and of itself. But it was very clear what this teacher's view was about the Middle Eastern conflicts, right? Um, If that teacher didn't post that on Facebook, presumably there's no riot, although at this particular school, it looks like there's a bit of a track record of students behaving badly even prior to this incident. But presumably there's no menacing of this teacher in the hall in the hallways and all of this is avoided so if this teacher followed the joseph in pennsylvania playbook this particular incident could have been averted that being said and i understand that's why so many teachers i know don't say their politics either in the classroom or on social media that being said even with the risks involved I think teachers should have no qualms about sharing their views on social media. I don't. And I realize this is a much more controversial thing. But I think even in the classroom, as long as those views don't cause you to penalize students that have alternative views, and as long as you are teaching the material fairly, if a student asks you, who are you voting for? I think you should be able to say who you're voting for. As long as you're not holding a differing opinion against what you're saying, and as long as you're teaching about, say, current events or anything fairly. Now, I realize that's much more of a slippery slope, but some of my favorite debates when I was in high school and junior high school were with my teachers. I loved it. I loved mixing it up and learning about And that's, you know, they were very good debaters, obviously. But I think especially when it comes to social media, there's not, um, I would hope that teachers don't refrain from broadcasting this. I understand why they do because of that. what that caller Frank told Dominic Carter from what Joseph said to me. One is you've got a lot of power when you're sculpting young minds. You've got a lot of power. And the other is, as you saw in this case in Queens, what if, what if there's some students that don't agree? Do you want them carrying around, carrying out, uh, you know, crying out loud and uh, creating a big to-do about these things? That would be avoided if you refrained from posting. I still don't think they should. I think we need more conversation, not less. So I understand where Joseph's coming from, but I um, I just part company eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two Larry and Brooklyn, what do you think?
0: Yeah, Frank, I I agree with you that I thought you were going the other way, but I agree with you that uh, there cannot be any restraint. In fact, social media is the place for people, for teachers to express their their views, not in the classroom. And the reason not in the classroom is because that is what what's causing the problem today. Because there are professors, mainly in the universities, that take advantage of the fact that they could that they're allowed now to express their opinion. Uh, maybe there was a time when they didn't; they had to be neutral. And now, and they went over the edge into indoctrination. And that is why the students start reacting violently because they're 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 being swayed by certain professors. To think in one way, and then when they find out that somebody in the minority thinks the other way, because they have young minds and they don't realize that people are entitled to their individual thoughts, they start get they start reacting violently. So the teacher should be very subtle and very careful in the classroom about not revealing where they, if only to convey to the students that it's a very private decision and they have to respect people by not. Mm -hmm. revealing their opinion they're they're conveying that they have to respect it's something that is very sacrosanct larry Larry,
1: i agree with you but let's say um just to play devil's advocate i i I might say well look all this whole incident could have been avoided if this teacher didn't post on facebook that i they stand with israel and now this is a a big to-do that's going to have ramifications for who knows how long what do you say to that
0: well, what you're your advocating is worse than the problem. Right? You're okay. advocating a, pro, a prior restraint yeah. on, on freedom of speech.
1: I agree with you, Larry. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Norman in Rockland. What do you
3: think?
0: Hey, Frank. Um, I think it's you know it's a it's a delicate line. You don't want your teachers uh, propagandizing to the students, uh, but on the other hand, we we should be teaching our children to be more tolerant of right. views that are that they don't agree with, and I think that that's you know, I mean, th- this was they were they were a lot of adults could learn that lesson whole too. By the way, for this teacher.
1: yeah, a lot of adults could learn that uh, that lesson too about being tolerant of, of views they don't yes. w- agree with. Yeah, thanks, Norman. 800-848-9222. Marianne is in the Queens. Hi, Marianne.
3: Good morning, Frank. Um, as a mother, I do not applaud that a teacher should win his uh, political preferences or point of view in the classroom. Now, I also agree that they have a private life. Whatever they do uh, with whatever, whatever they are, they can do it. I don't see no wrong with them uh, posting anything in the internet, but they have to be very careful because the problem that we have in the high, especially in the high schools is, is real uh, of a concern. I told you because of my son, they are being taught by some teachers that they have to defend the cause of the Democrat Party. And they say that's plank. And, and I believe that they are not supposed to uh, indoctrinize children to one way or another because they're becoming very aggressive. Right. And they and, are fighting yeah. against each other. And a lot of things is happening. Yeah, Marion, I,
1: I, th- I thank you. I don't think anybody including me is advocating for indoctrination now again where do you draw the line between um, stating opinion and indoctrinating it's it's one of those things that's tougher than it might seem but um, I see both sides of this but I really do think that um, that there's nothing that should stop a teacher in the world of social media or even look we're going to talk with a law professor in a minute who wrote an article. Uh, giving his opinion on something now it's a little bit more of a historical and a legal analysis than it is uh, oh, I love Democrats or I love Republicans, but when somebody writes an article like that, you know th- their view. Should teachers not do that? I don't think so. I think we'd be denying the whole the whole of civilization some really great scholarship 9222 Joe is in North Jersey. Hello Joe.
0: Yeah, hey Frank. Um uh going on a lighter note with this teacher, what if she uh was packing a water pistol and uh it looked like a real gun and uh these kids were intimidated and uh turned away or, you know, if she possibly uh would have squirted it at her at them, you know, what do you do? What do you do? <laughs> it's just, you know. It's crazy. She should not have uh, put her views on Facebook if she didn't want to uh, get the uh, radical uh, skinheads, Nazis, and everybody uh, incited. You know, what are you going to do?
1: So, uh, but Joe, in putting aside the water pistol aspect of it, you think teachers should avoid broadcasting their controversial views on social media?
2: Yes,
0: at all costs, because the kids today are all grown up. They're so streetwise. Uh, You're in, what, Queens was it? Bronx? I don't know. right. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> Kids are like ten years old shooting each other. You know, that's that's her her risk. So she has to take it. Mm-hmm. That's all I have to thank you for well, again. You're and the th- best.
1: Thanks, Joe. You're kind to say so. But again, I don't think that lets the students off the hook at all in terms of behaving inappropriately. I mean inappropriate behavior is just inappropriate behavior. All right, we're gonna talk with a teacher, albeit a law professor, in just a minute. And uh, I am looking forward to this conversation very much. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
3: He's your numero uno.
0: It's the other side of midnight with Frank Frank Morano.
1: This is a birthday bumper music selection from um, an old friend of mine. I haven't seen her in many years, Amanda Weyerbacher, who's a brilliant woman. She's a uh, PhD. She has a PhD in pharmacology and she's done a lot of great work in the healthcare field. And uh, a a beautiful, brilliant uh, woman who is uh, really making a contribution. To the world of uh, of healthcare, and uh, I am wishing her a happy birthday. It is anything but a happy occasion for anybody that is involved in the Trump organization, because as I'm sure a lot of you know, this bank fraud trial has been going on in New York State, where you have the Attorney General Letitia James. Pursuing this civil fraud trial, which is basically seeking to kick Donald Trump out of his own company, and you know what really hit home for me on uh, Tuesday of last week—they had the company's former accountant Jeffrey McConney and uh, testifying, and he's on the witness stand and he starts crying. This guy, this this very professional, very accomplished accountant, starts crying on the witness stand. And he bemoaned the way law enforcement keeps targeting him, meaning the accountant, to get his former boss. Former boss. Doesn't even still work there. And I just thought, what a shame that is. Because how different would the world be, not only for Jeffrey McConaughey, but for Donald Trump, Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, if Donald Trump had never run for president before and just kept doing what he was doing, I don't think you would have not only not seen this bank fraud trial, I don't think you would have seen these four criminal prosecutions, whatever you think of Donald Trump, even Michael Smirkanish, who's not a a Trump guy at all, has said that uh, he doesn't think these prosecutions would have been brought, certainly not the Alvin Bragg case, but for Donald Trump's political activism. And that kind of goes hand in hand with what Trump has said from the beginning about these criminal prosecutions. This trial
0: is a total witch hunt. And I should be entitled to a jury like everybody else is entitled to a jury. I have no
1: rights to have a jury. It's ridiculous. Thank you very much. Uh, Now, I think actually there might have been a situation which he could have gotten a jury in that civil trial, but he has said the same thing about the four criminal prosecutions. And that's why uh, a lot of the people that have been bemoaning Donald Trump's treatment by the Department of Justice and by prosecutors in New York and Georgia may be surprised to learn that they're on the same side of an issue of people that they wouldn't necessarily see eye to eye with. And all this was sort of, articulated very well for me in a column that I read in The Hill by Sheldon Evans, who's a professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis, and he focuses primarily on the intersections of criminal sentencing, punishment theory, and immigration policies. Uh, Professor Sheldon Evans, thanks so much for staying up late or getting up early with us.
4: I'm I'm happy to be on with you here, Frank, um, and uh, thanks for the opportunity.
1: Sheldon, I know before we discuss your op-ed, which I thought was uh, really interesting, in addition to the work that you're doing now out, out in Missouri, you used to be a teacher out in my neck of the woods in New York at St. John's and a lot of other East Coast schools. We're heard in New York now. We're heard on KMOX in St. Louis now culturally, lifestyle-wise, what's the biggest difference between living and working in New York versus living and working in St. Louis?
4: Oh, boy. Well, um, I would say the biggest change is the really the, the pace. The pace of it. You know, every place in the country has a different pace. Um, and, you know, New York City um, is, is just alive, you know, and it's, it's, it's just, um, there, there, there's so many great people there. Um, and everybody's always on all the time. And that's, um, that has a lot of great qualities to it. Um, in other places in the country, you know, it's a little bit more relaxed, um, you know, I- including my home state of California, I would, I would, um, uh, argue is, is that way as well. So it's, it's a, it's a bit of a more relaxed, pace, which which works um, for for some people who aren't, you know, um, as as uh, maybe born and bred in New York.
1: Uh, gotcha. Makes makes a lot of sense. Uh, Sheldon, I thought your op ed really made a lot of sense, no matter where people come from uh, across the political spectrum. M- my guess, and it's only a guess, my guess, though, just so folks know where you're coming from, is that politically, you're not a Trump supporter. Would I be accurate in that guess? Um. You you had me dead to rights. Okay, I, I would gotcha. put myself in in that camp. Gotcha. We just had a discussion, and it's. Uh, I thought it was an interesting discussion, and a lot of people raised interesting points about what teachers, going from you know the high school level, the collegiate level, all the way up to what you do at law school, what they should tell their students about their own political views do you Do you tell your students where you come down on political issues?
4: That's a very interesting question about kind of the philosophy of teaching. My standpoint is, um, I do not tell my students uh, where I personally lean uh, because my goal in the classroom, isn't really to pontificate my own views my goal in the classroom is to give the students tools um in which they can come to their their own conclusions and um you know i i think for for me uh the mark of a great teacher is one where at the end of the semester you don't really know where they lean um And that's that's my own perspective. Many teachers I respect have different perspectives, uh, but that's how I tend to structure my own philosophy.
1: All right. Um, As far as you can tell, do you think these Trump criminal prosecutions are political? Uh,
4: Yes, yes. Um, Now, it's not as. Simple as as simply saying, um, you know, because Trump is a Republican, then that means everybody who's a Democrat, um, you know, especially political leaders, are are always going to be after him, and that's the only thing that matters in these decisions. It's D versus R, and it's R versus D. Right? That that's that's an oversimplified um, version or an oversimplified answer to kind of the, the poli- how politics are involved in crime. Um, but politics is certainly a factor, um, that that decision makers take into account. So when you have, uh, you know, left leaning Democrats and left leaning prosecutors, uh, who are looking to make a name for themselves, um, you know, a, a big fish like Donald Trump is uh, certainly somebody to, uh, you know, that, that they focus on and would put under, I think, additional scrutiny than, um, you know, than, than kind of the average citizen in their jurisdiction.
1: You get into some of the institutional problems with uh, that lead to things like this, which I want to get into in a moment. But I'm curious if you share my view that um, if Trump were not running for president now, it's very unlikely that these five cases, the four criminal cases and the civil fraud case would have been brought by prosecutions. Do you agree with that?
4: That's uh that is a tough question. Um I think that there there might be something to that. Um I, I do think that there there is somewhat of an urgency and when you look at the time of these cases, um Donald Trump's candidacy makes, um, makes the decision to charge him. And when these, when these charging decisions came out, um, it it certainly was part of the calculus of what to charge him with, when to charge him and also where he's being charged as well. Um, so I do think that his, his upcoming candidacy was a factor, um, I don't know if it's, if it was the deciding factor, if, if he wasn't running with these things, you know, still be, uh, coming against him. Uh, but I, but I think that there's a good argument that, you know, I, I that, that, that was an important factor in moving forward with with some of these cases.
1: Many people have probably heard that uh, Jim Jordan and several other House Republicans are threatening to investigate local prosecutors over these Trump prosecutions. You you write in your piece for The Hill, uh, which I'm going to link to and uh, people could check out at Facebook.com slash You write, one need not agree with Trump's claims of political martyrdom or with would-be House Speaker Jim Jordan's threats to investigate local prosecutors to understand the perverse incentives of a politicized criminal legal system. What are the incentives of a politicized criminal justice system, Sheldon?
4: Yeah, so most of us think about crime and, you know, punishing offenders uh, based on you know some sense of moral justice that you know people who do something wrong and they know that it's wrong are being punished fairly according to you know what they did wrong, and that's really an idealized sense of the criminal legal system, and that's not always how it works out. So some of the perverse incentives that seep their way into the existing criminal legal system are things like political considerations. So, you know, everybody who does something wrong isn't necessarily getting punished. And there are people um, who are looking to maybe garner votes by targeting certain people, you know, on this side of the aisle, you know, there might be some left-leaning prosecutors that are looking to garner votes in their blue districts by targeting uh, former president, Donald Trump. But, you know, that also works on the other side of the aisle. There might be um, some right leaning prosecutors or policymakers that are looking to garner votes by targeting mm-hmm. uh, by targeting certain communities as well.
1: So I think this is such an interesting point, obviously in a place like Manhattan, Donald Trump on the whole is not popular. So if you're running for office in Manhattan like Alvin Bragg is, it's an easy way to score some political points by prosecuting Donald Trump. If you're a prosecutor in a state like uh, Wyoming or West Virginia and you have an opportunity to bring a prosecution against Hunter Biden, I imagine there are going to be no shortage of voters that think that's a good idea and then either elect you or reelect you. Given what we're seeing with elected prosecutors in the Trump cases, you have Alvin Bragg, Fawny Willis and uh, Letitia James. Do you think that it would depoliticize the legal system and the criminal justice system to have appointed prosecutors as say, New Jersey does on the County level rather than elected prosecutors?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I I do think that it would certainly help mitigate some of the, you know, these perverse incentives we're talking about. You know, if prosecutors didn't have to worry about, you know, garnering votes for their next um, election. However, you know, let's say that, you know, there's an appointed prosecutor, you know, and, and we have to ask the question, who are they being appointed by? They're, they're still going to be right. appointed by some political actor, whether that's the governor, you know there you know federal judges are appointed by the President of the United States so there's still going to be some political considerations in who does that person in power appoint to be a prosecutor um, and um, is you know that prosecutor doesn't isn't necessarily doing that person's bidding but there are political considerations in who is appointed to be a prosecutor. Well, it's likely to be somebody who leans um, in in uh, in the in kind of the the political favor of the person doing the appointing. So there there are still going to be some trickle down effects of uh, kind of political considerations in who's being selected to be a prosecutor and where they tend to lean in their kind of criminal justice philosophy.
1: Right. One of the uh, best examples of that is when uh, George W. Bush Uh, took the unprecedented step of dismissing seven U.S. attorneys and uh, the rumor was that the Bush administration was unhappy that these people weren't prosecuting Democrats or that they weren't putting the brakes on investigations into Republican prosecution. So to your point, you can absolutely have uh, appointed prosecutors that are just as political as as the elected ones. So um, when we talk about going after uh, Donald Trump, right? Obviously, Donald Trump is very famous. And there are other people that have been the subject of high level criminal prosecutions before that happen to be famous. People like Roger Clemens, people like uh, Martha Stewart, folks like uh, John Edwards, folks, you know, mm-hmm. in a wide variety of sectors. Is it about, is it political? Or is it about getting high profile scalps so that the prosecutor that gets that high profile scalp can then benefit from the publicity and the other opportunities that come with being front and center of uh, a high profile case? Well, it can be a little bit of both.
4: Um, I, I certainly think that. Uh, many prosecutors are incentivized by kind of trying to reel in a big fish, and that doesn't always have to be politicized right there there can be uh you know various non partisan celebrity type offenders um, that would uh, that would also benefit a prosecutor's career to say you know i I brought down." Martha Stewart as as being one of your examples. But now let's play that out a little bit. If if a prosecutor brings down Martha Stewart, well, is that still a politicized uh, decision? To a certain extent, it is. Mm. Even though Martha Stewart is nonpartisan, that prosecutor can still themselves benefit politically by going after a big fish. So it's not always about the The politicization of the of the target but it can also benefit the political career of um of the prosecutor and you know really quickly uh, another new york example is uh mayor uh, rudy giuliani who back in the day you know he was he went after the mob very very um you know Maybe famous is the wrong word, but but a targeted a, a powerful group. Sure. And made a big name for himself and rode that all the way into the mayor's office.
1: Yeah, uh, no question about it. Uh, that's a great example. Um One of the things that I hear from a lot of Trump supporters is that it seems like the Justice Department only cuts one way, that when Republicans do something wrong or someone associated with Donald Trump does something wrong, they get indicted or investigated. And uh, there is a feeling that that's not as common uh, when it's the other side of the aisle. Is that true? Have Democrats been the victim of these sort of political prosecutions as well?
4: I would say you have to look at the arc of history. Um, so, so for the history buffs, uh, the answer is almost certainly yes, but it worked a little bit differently. So, you know, this goes back even to the 60s and 70s. It's something I talk a little bit about in my article um, that uh, Republican presidents, especially such as Richard Nixon, um, actually targeted People and use the criminal justice system from the president's office to target groups that he believed uh, were his political enemies, and he targeted and and used policies to target um, left-leaning anti-war, what he called hippies, you know, his term, not mine, and also African Americans. Both of these groups, he deemed to, you know, not be voting for him and, you know, to be voting against him. Um, And so he made it known, um, you know, at least among his inner circle that, you know, he was going to target these certain groups to, um, to kind of lessen their political power. And, you know, so that he could gain politically from that. Um, And those are two groups that, historically would vote Democrat um, and might still be voting Democrat. Um, and we see some of the the impacts of mass incarceration still impacting uh, some of those groups even to this day.
1: Is that why there has historically, at least until recently, been such a disparity for the mandatory minimum prison sentence for crack cocaine versus regular powdered cocaine? That's, that's certainly part of it. Um, and you
4: know, there, there still is a sentencing disparity under federal law and, you know, different States have, um, you know, ha- have, different, uh, ways of, of, uh, targeting those, those different crimes. Um, but you know, the, the mandatory minimums, if you look across the board, um, you know, race does indeed play a factor um, in who's being targeted, what communities are, um, are kind of a part of the, the dragnet, um, and what cases are being brought to prosecutors. And then ultimately the decision of prosecutors to charge certain crimes and, and apply for certain sentences um, does often, um, uh, unfortunately, have, dis- have racial disparities uh, to them.
1: Talking with Sheldon Evans, he's a professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis. You write that we the people are partially to blame for the politicization of the legal system. How come? What did we do?
4: Well, we are the people, to use that phrase, that are voting in politicians. You know, the, the power of this great government that we have um is derived from us. We have the power to vote, um, and um, we are voting in the types of politicians that are um, you know, that are engaged in these perverse incentives. Um, but it goes a little bit deeper than that because uh, politicians, on their part, are also, um, using crime as a um, as a tool that somewhat drives fear, and there are few things that drive people um, in their lives or certainly to the voting booths um, more than fear. It's it's the fear of crime, and it's it's a very real fear um, that motivates a lot of people to to vote and to to vote a certain way and to vote for the tough on crime candidate. We've heard that before. Um, And that was very popular in the eighties, nineties, and and it's even uh, popular to this day, which of these candidates is going to keep us safe from crime. Um, And so that is indeed a fear that politicians play on. And it is something that we, the people are still voting on. And as long as we vote, um, you know, according to crime policies, politicians will continue to push that button. And, you know, as I say in my op-ed, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that we should be driven Mm -hmm. by crime policies, um, you know, to, to pick who is the best leader, you know, for our particular jurisdiction or country.
1: Sheldon, I'm going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate the time. I hope we could talk again in the future. Thanks so much, Frank. Take care. Thank you, Sheldon Evans. And again, if you want to read the piece, uh, we there's a lot more detail. Other than what we just spoke about, but you can go to my Facebook page. I just posted it up there Facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's Facebook.com slash M O R A N O fan. This is the other side of midnight. You can comment if you like. 800 848 9222. 800 848 9222. Comment if you like straight ahead.
0: The other side of midnight. side at midnight with Frank Morano. Out of all the reindeer
1: is Shatner Claus. That's right. William Shatner from his terrific Christmas album, Shatner Clause. We put up our Christmas decorations yesterday. And um, th- that's a tradition in the Moreno household these last few years is we put up our Christmas decorations while listening to Shatner Clause. A terrific album. If you're interested in Christmas music. Rudolph, by the way, is one of the people that, um, or one of the Characters that my son recognizes He has a, a Rudolph doll He knows exactly who Rudolph is He calls him Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer And sometimes he'll actually sing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Not this particular version But you know the more conventional version He knows he has a very shiny nose And so forth And uh, I was uh, glad to be able to spend A lot of time with my son over the last few days Obviously the holidays And his birthday And uh, just spending some time with him he really has gotten uh, so mature, but he's just I find him so funny. You know what he does is he'll ask for something and then you'll clarify if that's what he's asking for and then he'll act like it was your idea. But and say okay. You know, for instance, he'll say "ice pop?" and then and then you'll say do you want what do you want? An, are you asking for do you want an ice pop? And then he'll say, OK, you know, he does that. He'll ask, you want an ice pop? I'll say, OK, like I came up with it. No, just say yes. You want an ice pop? Yes, please. But um, but he does remember his manners most of the uh, most of the time. I had a, a very difficult day in terms of trying to sleep yesterday. And I know a lot of people are awake. Right now, because they're having a difficult time trying to sleep. And you know what really, and I have a lot of experience working odd hours, really almost my whole life. The biggest mistake people make when they can't sleep, when they're lying down in bed and they can't sleep, is panicking. And you really can't stress, and I know, I do it. I was doing this yesterday, because I'm lying in bed, And I don't know what it was. I had maybe my weekly cup of coffee on Sunday morning. Maybe that played a factor. I also had a Diet Coke yesterday, which I rarely do. And maybe having two caffeinated beverages, even if it was that early in the day, it screwed me up sleep-wise. Because I was still up at a quarter to five, and I couldn't sleep. I tried twice to sleep uh, so that I'd be well-prepared for the show. Couldn't sleep a wink. I am uh, lying in bed wide awake. And then so you start thinking to yourself, "Oh no. I'm going to be exhausted for the show or I'm going to be exhausted for my flight or I'm going to be exhausted whatever. You 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 work yourself up into a panic and then you you can't relax. So I uh I you have to take a deep breath and almost meditate. And sometimes you get to sleep, sometimes you don't. But you have to when you're trying to sleep and you can't Uh, I think you have to accept the fact that, okay, you're not going to sleep. You're going to sit here or lie here. Your body is resting. And if you're not getting sleep, you're not getting sleep. At least your body is resting. And then eventually, I find most of the time, didn't work for me yesterday, (laughs) but most of the time, you do fall asleep. If you mimic the sleeping position, it's kind of like our conversation about gratitude last week. If you're not feeling grateful and you act grateful anyway... Eventually, you do become grateful. I think the same could be true of sleep. I know it sounds bizarre, but I do think that's true. All right. Those of you that are eager to chat, you can call me at 800-848-9222. We got commendations coming up and a whole lot more. Until next hour. Uh, Our phone number, by the way, 800-848-9222. We're on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Until next hour. In the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.